Well, it's so good to see you this morning. Like I said earlier, my name is Pastor Jonathan, and I am so glad that you have joined us for worship this morning. If you have known me uh, for any point of time, you know that there is one distinguishing identifying factor about me. It's that I have this dot on my forehead. It's a birthmark. Uh, When I was born, uh, my parents thought it was a bruise that would go away. But yet 37 years later, here we are. It's still there. When I was a child, it was something that marked me as different and occasionally was the cause of some childhood picking. But it wasn't until high school that I figured out that in a world where everyone was trying to be something that would find something that would make them different and stand out, I already had it. I was born with a built-in identifying mark. In fact, I remember my grandmother, who was a four foot ten Cajun woman who was never short on opinions. One time when she was looking through my yearbook pictures and they were in black and white, she said, well, I never have to wonder which one is Jonathan. He's got that dot right on his forehead. It's because I've got this identifying mark that people know when they see me. In 2020, in a world where we had to walk around with our faces covered, and in 2021, when we still do it often, uh, oftentimes it's hard to tell who is who, but not with me. You see me coming. Like, you know, I've got the dot on my forehead that I was born with. You know, my kids draw pictures on Sunday mornings, and in every picture they include the dot on my forehead and my bald spot, you know? So I have these identifying markers. My birthmark, while it was something as a child that I wish I didn't have because it was something that made me different, in my high school and college and adulthood years, I have learned that it's just part of what makes me me. It's an identifying mark. As Christians, we should all have identifying marks as well. Today, we'll discover what those identifying marks are. Last week, when I preached in 1 John, we discovered that because the Holy Spirit is living within us, We can discern a truth from error by testing with the word. Today, our primary question is this. What is the one identifying mark that all believers should have in common? If you have your Bibles, take them out and turn to the book of 1 John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And that's where we will be today. 1 John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. And it says this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. John begins our passage of Scripture today with a call for believers to love one another. If you feel like you've seen this before as I've preached through the book of 1 John, you are not imagining things. In 1 John 2, verses 7-11, through John reminded us that this was not a new commandment, but this was an old commandment that we are to love each other. In chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, John reminded us how Christian love should differ from the world's hate. And then in chapter 3, verse 23, John summarized God's commands that we must believe in Jesus Christ and love one another. And then in chapter 4, verses 7 through 21, John turns back to the subject of love one last time. 
Today, we'll be focused on God's love for us in verses 7 through 11. And next week in verses 7 through 20, or 12 through 21, we will be focused on our love for others. So what does John say about love in today's passage? Well, first, he says that we should love one another. And second, he says that love is from God. The source of our love for one another is God. In fact, not only is God the source of our love for one another, but his love indwells inside every true believer. John says that whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then in verse 8, he says the opposite. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This is typical John fashion. He says one thing in the positive and then restates it in the opposite way. However, the point here is sizable. John, in effect, is saying that the absence of love for one another is evidence that a person does not know God because God is love. Maybe you've been to another country or in a situation where everyone speaks a different language than you. Or maybe you are here and English is your second language. If you've been in those situations, you know how frustrating it is to have that language barrier for everyone to speak a different language than you. John is saying here, if you don't have love, then you don't speak the language of a believer. You don't communicate in the language of God. However, if you do know God, you speak the same language as him because you are his child and children should reflect the character DNA of their spiritual father. Love evidences the new birth and knowledge of God. He says at the end of verse 8, God is love. We can quickly pass by this statement that John makes here, but there is a lot in these three words. First, we have to understand that there is meaning in the order. It's not the same thing to say that God is love and love is God, just as it's not to say that grass is green and everything that is green is grass. God is love, but love is not God. Love doesn't define God. God defines love. There are some things that God cannot do. I told my kids earlier this week, I asked them, I said, is there anything God can't do? And they knew it was a trick question uh, because they've known me long enough. And they're like, give us the answer, Dad. So there are some things that God cannot do because they go against his character. And one of those things is God cannot fall in love because God is love. God cannot fall in love for the same reason that water can't get wet. God is love and God is love and eternal action. Love is part of the nature of God. As humans, much of our love is responsive. You know, I first loved my spouse because fill in the blank. Or I love my job because fill in the blank. Human love is often defined and described in terms of response to something desirable, of a situation or the object or the person. And where human love is usually responsive love, with God, love comes first. Because we as humans understand love in a responsive way, we can quickly move to the thought process of what can I do to deserve God's love? We may even create a merit-based system in our head of I must do this for God to love me. And if I fail to do this, then God won't love me. But let me ask you this. What have any of us done to be deserving of God's love? What can you offer a holy God who chose to create you? Nothing. Not only did God choose to create you, but when all of humanity rebelled against him in disobedience, he loved us and provided a way for our salvation because God is love. As humans, we understand reactionary love because that is often how we choose to love. But God is love. 
C.S. Lewis referred to God's love as gift love, saying that there is no hunger in God that needs to be filled, only plenteousness that desires to give. When we know God, when we have been born of God, when we have a relationship with God, then we are affected. And that affection is outworking in the enabling us to love those who are naturally unlovable. When we know God, we love one another because God is love. Love is personified in God. And not only is love personified in God, but love is proven as well. In verse 9, we see the greatest outworking of God's love in all of human history. Verse 9 says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. What does it mean to make something manifest? Well, to make something manifest, it means to make it visible, to make it known. In other words, the love of God was made known among us. John in this phrase is almost saying, I have found the greatest secret of God's love to us. Here is the clearest evidence of divine love that ever was or ever can be made visible towards humanity. But how was this done? It was done when God became flesh. He sent himself, God the Son, to become fully man and fully God, to live among us. Notice it was God's love that caused Jesus to be sent. God sent. We can't pass by that too quickly. Think about this. Imagine after church, uh, the person in front of you has been thinking this entire sermon about what they're going to get to eat. They've been thinking about roses, about that uh, steak burrito that they're going to get after church. And they don't have time to shake your hand. They don't have time to talk to anybody. They've got one mission, and it involves getting to roses as quickly as possible. In their haste, they step on your toe. Would you expect yourself to say, hey, I forgive you? No, you would say, ouch, and you would expect them to say, hey, I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me? And because we are loving people, we would offer them forgiveness, hopefully. Maybe in return if they would take us to roses and pay for our meal. But notice, God did not wait for rebellious humanity to initiate forgiveness. God began the process. God sent his son. Charles Spurgeon said this about this verse. It's not man that turns beggar to God for salvation. It is, if, my, if I may dare to say it, as though the eternal God himself begged of his creatures to be saved. Jesus Christ is not coming to the world to be sought for, but to seek which is lost. And it all begins with him. God sent his son from heaven because that's where he was. Our God was not lonely or he was not in need of company. The triune God has existed forever in perfect loving community and communion. But he sent his son into enemy territory, into a world of sinners on a search and rescue mission. He came looking for us even when we were not looking for him. And why did he come? He came so that we might live through him. God didn't send his son because you achieved some level of goodness. He didn't send him because you somehow obtained his favor. In fact, we were all dead, dead to our trespasses, dead to all goodness, or even the thought of goodnesses. Yet God, with, God loved us with great love, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, so that we might live through him. Christian, think for a moment on the goodness of the gospel, the goodness of this truth. 
God's love for us today is amazing. It is wonderful. But think of how great his love was for us while we were in rebellion against him. Think upon his love for us, the foreigner, the one who didn't speak the language of love, the alien, an immigrant. But now, but now we can proclaim with confidence, as Paul did in Ephesians 2.19, that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And God being rich in mercy because of his great love, we are now alive in Christ, in, in Christ and we have been saved by grace. Christian, that is good news. In fact, this verse is a strong restatement of the most memorized verse in our culture. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God initiated salvation and he sent his son so whoever believes in him will have eternal life. This is what it means to live through him. It means to be born of God and to know God, to experience his love and to share in that love with other believers. It means to walk in the light, to enjoy fellowship with one another, to confess and receive forgiveness of sins, to abide in his word and to have victory over sin and so much more. Christian, I want you to remember the goodness of the gospel today. That God has pursued you and offered you new life. And this is good news. This is a great exchange. Christ got what he didn't deserve, which was death on a cruel cross. And we get what we don't deserve, forgiveness and eternal life. But how was this great exchange accomplished? How are our sins paid for? Look at verse 10. It says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is God's love that originated this salvation and his love for us that precedes our love for him. However, God did not, God's love did not come without a cost. It cost his only son, Jesus, his Christ, Jesus Christ, his life on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus got what he did not deserve so we can get what we don't deserve, eternal life and forgiveness of our sins. But how was this great exchange accomplished? Verse 10 says that Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. This is a big word with a big meaning. Put simply, propitiation means to appease someone's wrath. That Jesus was the sacrifice offered on our behalf, which appeased God's wrath against our sin. More complex, it includes God's holiness and wrath and justice and mercy and love and grace all wrapped up together. All of our sin is an offense against God's wrath. We see in Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is his settled nature against sin. And God's character won't allow him to be associated with sin because sin violates God's law. And this law demands that justice be done. And God is just, so he must punish sin. But God is also merciful. He is willing that sinners not receive all that they deserve for their sin. And even more, God is love. And his love extends for all people. And God desires the salvation of all people. But there is nothing that sinners can do to earn God's forgiveness of their sins. That's when God's grace enters the picture. God does something that we could never do for ourselves. He pays the price for our sin. 
When Jesus died on the cross, he became our substitute and he took the wrath of God against our sin upon himself, satisfying God's justice in a payment for sin. In Jesus' death on the cross, God's holiness and justice and wrath and mercy and love and grace all come together and converge. Listen to this. Where humans should make the sacrifice for our sins because we are the offender. Only God could make the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus, fully God and fully man, is the only Savior in which the should and the could come together and are united. Therefore, when John says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, he means that our sin has been paid for, that its penalty has been removed, and God's wrath is satisfied. And believer, that is good news. 1 John Chapter 2, verse 2 says this, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is not only good news for us as a believer, but this is also good news for the whole world. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world because his death was sufficient to deal with the sins of the whole world. However, his sacrifice does not become effective until people believe in him. So today, if you are in this room and if you are not a believer, I want you to hear me when I say this. Christ died for you. Believe in him. Repent of your sins. Follow him and be the recipient of his forgiveness. If you don't know the goodness of the gospel today, if you want to hear, I want you to hear me when I say this. God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Today, God is offering you eternal life in him. He's offering you forgiveness before you've even known that you've done something wrong. He is the only way to forgiveness. Would you receive it? Propitiation. It's a big word with a big meaning. And it's how the greatest exchange of all of human history was accomplished. Verse 11, John finishes in this section, verse 11, saying this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John ends much the same way that he began this section of Scripture, knowing, that we, knowing what we know about God and knowing how much God has loved us. When we truly understand what God has done for us and how he loves us, we must love one another. You can't love as you ought until you understand how God has loved you. Now, when I was growing up, uh, my grandfather and my father would often make the statement to me that included the word ought. Uh, they both believed in allowing me to make my own mistakes. But when they saw me headed toward a danger zone, they would say something like this, Jonathan, you ought not do that, right? Uh, how many, y'all have heard that before, right? You've heard your parents say that. Uh, they were telling me in that instance that I had a choice, but they were strongly advising me in what I should or should not do. This little word ought found in verse 11 carries a different weight than it did in the culture that I grew up in and many of us grew up in. Used here in this context, it means an obligation, something that we must do, even something that we are in debt to. We ought to love. We must love. We have to love if we know God's love. Now, before we move to Odessa, uh, we lived in a small town north of Dallas, and this town was a mixture of cultures. Uh, we had those who lived and commuted to Dallas and for work daily and did life in DFW, but we also had those that had lived there for many years, and they wouldn't go into Dallas if you paid them to do so. If they got sick, they were finding a hospital in Oklahoma. They weren't going down to Dallas, right? So we had a mixture of cultures. 
in this town and in our church, there were a lot of farmers that had been there for many generations. And one particular family that, had, that was attending our church had been farming in the area for five or six generations, and they also raised cattle. And they had, maybe you've seen it, they had a family cattle brand that went along with their family. And man, they loved it. And when I say they loved it, I mean they loved it. Uh, it was on their belt buckles. It was stamped in the concrete in front of their homes. Uh, they had the iron-made signs hanging up of it in their homes. They had it on their shirts. They had it on their hats. And oh, by the way, they also had it on their cattle, right? So they had it on everything, and they loved this brand. If their cattle got away from their land, or if they accidentally left their belt buckle somewhere, people knew who those items belonged to. Why? Because they were branded, uh, they were marked, and they had an identifying marker. Christian, we ought to have an identifying marker as well, to be marked, to be branded, and have an identifying marker from God. They should know us by our love. John in this passage is saying that God is love. Remember his love for you, his love on display, his love made manifest through Jesus Christ, his love sent to a cross for you, his love becoming the propitiation for your sins. Therefore, because God has loved you, you must love one another. You must be marked with love. You must be branded with this identifying marker. It must be the language that you speak. Not you should or you could or you might maybe ought to think about it, but if you know God, you must love one another. Believer, these are strong words. We have an obligation to one another. God is love, and if we know God, then we will love one another. I think most of us in this room would amen that, and we'd agree with that statement. Of course, we should love one another. We, we do agree with this, and church, we do practice love. But for us as believers in Jesus Christ, the citizens of Midland and Odessa, Texas, what does this outworking of that love look for like in believers today? When we love other believers, one way that it is tangibly outworked in our, is our concern and our care for others. Many of us, many in this room, are really good at tangibly caring for others. Taking meals and writing cards and sending text messages and making phone calls and making sure that others are cared for. And these are incredibly loving things to do. And I don't know how people who are not a part of a church make it through difficult times. We are blessed to have one another. And it is an amazing thing to watch the church love on one another when we go through difficult times. However, what about seasons of inward distress? I think we all still care for one another. But it's a difficult thing to care for someone in seasons of distress that are inward because we don't see the struggle occurring. For us to truly care for one another, we need to allow ourselves to be honest with one another. No one in this walls has it figured out. No one that follows Christ should be proclaiming, hey, I've got this, no problems aboard. None of us are perfect or we wouldn't need to be here. In order for us to honestly care for one another, we have to be vulnerable with one another. I can't tell you how many times as an adult, as a minister, I've walked into church on a Sunday morning and I've just been hurting, you know, or I've been carrying a weight with me and just struggling. And to have someone ask me, you know, how are you doing today? And then I just fake a smile and I say, I'm doing fine. You know, you know the answer. Everything's great. We're doing good. I mean, maybe we don't need to spill it all out in the hallway at the first question of how your day is going. But then again, maybe we do. We need to allow ourselves to be in conversation with a few people who we can be honest with and who can pray for us and care for us, and we do the same for them. 
Believer, we don't exist to do this on our own. And when we come in here and we carry this weight, often the enemy will lie to us and he tells us that no one cares, that, that no one is concerned, but that's not far, that can be farther from the truth. We need to be honest with one another about our struggles so we can battle for each other on our knees, so that we can go to prayer with one another. We've got to be honest with each other. Men, find someone to confide in. Ladies, find someone to confide in. And let's fight each other's battles on our knees, crying out for each other's struggles, hurts, and pains. To love one another well, we must be concerned and caring and allow ourselves to be concerned and cared for. Another way that we can love other believers is simply by forgiving one another. We know this. This is nothing new. But man, is it hard When someone wrongs us, when someone hurts our feelings, oftentimes in our minds, we can make a mental note of fool me once and I will forever have you marked down as a person who I have a grudge against. However, if we know the love of God, if we speak the language of love, if we are marked by love, then we must practice radical forgiveness with one another. How how can how we wrong one another, how, how we hurt each other's feelings. But at the end of the day, if we are both believers, we must know that we are filled with the love of God and therefore we must love one another and forgive each other. We can be honest with one another. Hey, when you did this, it hurt me. Or when you said this, it made me embarrassed. But we must be a people who are marked by our forgiveness for one another. Christians can be awful at forgiveness, can't we? I mean, you hear it all the time. This church split from this church because something happened that no one remembers what it was, but they remember that someone was hurt and it hurt someone. If we are marked by love with God, then we must be a people who practice forgiveness. As a parent of three kids, there are a lot of things that I feel like I say over and over and over every single day. One of those things that we emphasize over and over for our kids is to treat one another how you want to be treated. Basically summarizing Matthew 12, this has been referred to as the golden rule. I remember that being taught in public schools in the 90s. However, our culture, if they ever did, do not practice this golden rule anymore. But Christians should be marked differently. Because we know God's love, we are recipients of God's love. Therefore, we must treat others how we want to be treated. And this requires us having to practice selflessness, which is not very popular in our culture today. What is popular in our culture today? Division. Division over race. Division over masks, over vaccines, over attendance of public events. You probably cringe just as I said that because of the division that we have in our country. But as Christians, where there is principle such as race, we fight for and we speak up for the mistreated. We are vocal that God loves everyone, red, yellow, black, white, green, orange, and blue. However, when it comes to preferences, such as masks or vaccines or attendance of public events, we practice love, respecting that we all have different opinions and that we all have different preferences. Christians, we should be marked differently than the world. Instead of allowing our preferences to divide us like the world is now, we treat others in the way that we want to be treated by respecting their preferences and by finding ways to love them within those preferences. To love one another well, we practice forgiveness and we treat one another how we want to be treated and by being concerned and caring for one another. When we are believers in Christ, we need to be marked by our love for other believers. However, there's also another implication from this text. 
Verse 10 says that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved you. God sent his son so that you could be forgiven. That's a huge statement. The God who created you loves you and desires that you be forgiven. God tells us that he has forgiven us. We saw in 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you see, the problem is some of us have not forgiven ourselves. Yet God tells us to be imitators of him. But yet we hold on to the guilt of past sins and we let it distract us from the freedom that we have in Christ. We come up, like I said earlier, with some merit system that we have created in our heads to somehow become good enough for God to allow that one sin to be forgiven. When the truth is, he has already forgiven you and you need to allow yourself to be forgiven. Look around. What have any of us done to be deserving of the love of God? But God is love and God has declared that we are forgiven and that he loves us. We are to be imitators of God. Therefore, we should allow ourselves to be forgiven and love ourselves enough to allow ourselves to be forgiven. But sometimes we don't love ourselves, do we? We don't allow ourselves to be forgiven, and we don't think that we can be reunited with God. And you're right. You can't be good enough for God. And that's the point. But hear me when I say this. Won't you allow God to be good enough for you? Christian, believer, God loves you. He has forgiven you for your past sins and your present sins and your future sins. Not so you can continue on sinning, but so that you can walk in freedom from the bondage of sin. Don't wear the chains of sin. When God has granted you freedom, don't you dare put back on those chains of your past sins, but you walk boldly as a redeemed person proclaiming that God is love. And you walk confidently as a forgiven person in Christ, not for anything that we've done, but for everything that he has done. God is love. Love must be an identifying marker of all believers. And sometimes that love outworked looks like allowing ourselves to be loved and forgiven by God. A final outworking of this passage as believers who have the identifying mark of love for God is that we, sh- we must love future believers of Jesus Christ. And we do this through sharing our faith with our friends, our family, and our coworkers. Yesterday, a small group of us gathered to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ with the neighborhood north of our church. We were able to reach 268 homes and handed out 124 gospel tracts, and shared the gospel 20 times. And that is great, but there is so much more work that needs to be done in sharing the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the identifying markers of a true believer of Jesus Christ is that they love future saints through sharing their faith. Now, at the beginning of our time today, I shared a funny illustration about the birthmark on my forehead and how it's an identifying marker for me, something that has identified me and makes me who I am. Then I told you that our primary question for today was this. What is the one identifying mark that all believers should have in common? If you haven't figured it out by now, it's love. All believers should have the identifying mark of loving one another. Our big idea for today is this, because God is love. Those who know him 
should be marked by him in their love for one another. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Believer, how has God used this passage in your heart today? How are you doing in loving other believers through caring, through allowing yourself to be cared for, through forgiveness, through treating others the way that you want to be treated? How are you doing in sharing your faith? Christian, I want you to be confident in Christ today. Maybe you struggle with allowing yourself to be forgiven. Maybe you struggle, you struggle with valuing, valuing yourself like God values you. I want you to walk confidently in him because he is worthy of our confidence. He is worthy to forgive. He is worthy to love. Won't you allow him to be good enough for you? If you're in this room today and you don't have a relationship with God, I've shared the gospel several times today already. But today I want to tell you this clearly. You cannot be good enough to earn your way into heaven. You cannot have hope in your actions to save you from your sins and from an eternity in a real place called hell. Our only hope is in Christ alone. Won't you cry out to him today that you believe? Won't you confess your sins to him and follow him? Today I want to call you to respond. In a moment, when we sing a song, that is the moment that you can come down front and I can help you walk through this. Would you come today? Believers, the altar is open. Let's do business with the Lord. Church, I love you. Let's pray.